Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called A Repentant Sinner or a Hidden Saint? The Story of Zacchaeus. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, November the 3rd, 2013. I don't know if you'll celebrate Halloween this week, All Hallows' Eve on October 31st, but I hope you'll remember All Saints' Day on November the 1st. The Gospel this week about Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19 provides us with the perfect story to do so. But as is so often the case with Jesus, he messes with our assumptions about saints and sinners. The story of Zacchaeus occurs only in Luke. It comes at the end of Luke's travel narrative that begins in 951 in Galilee, where we read, When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Luke repeats himself at least eight times in this narrative, saying that Jesus is heading inexorably to Jerusalem. And then the journey ends when Jesus enters Jerusalem, where Luke says in 1947 that every day he was teaching at the temple. The name Zacchaeus means righteous, which is pure irony in this story. Luke describes him as the sort of sleazeball person that we love to hate. He says that Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. That is, he was a Jew who collected taxes for the Roman oppressors. So he was a traitor to the political cause. Luke also says that Zacchaeus was wealthy. And surprise, surprise, how did a Roman tax collector get wealthy? By extortion and embezzlement by taking advantage of the elderly, by exploiting the working poor, and by taking care of his cronies. There's an unspoken assumption of corruption here. Zacchaeus, it would seem, is a man who deserves our disdain. Zacchaeus was not only corrupt and rich, he was short. When Jesus passed through Jericho, he was eager to get a look. So he did something utterly undignified for a man of his station. He ran ahead of the crowd, climbed up into a tree, then waited for Jesus to pass by. Imagine a powerful lobbyist in Washington doing something similar during a presidential parade. When Jesus reached that spot, he looked up. He saw Zacchaeus and told him to come down. He then invited himself to stay with Zacchaeus. He says, I must stay at your house today. And so Zacchaeus climbed down and Luke says, he welcomed Jesus gladly. The response of the crowd was predictable. Luke says that they began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. 
With this comment, Luke has returned to one of his major themes, found earlier in chapter 15, verse 2, that Jesus welcomes sinners. Which theme was the occasion for his three stories about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost prodigal son? Indeed, in the Gospel from Luke 19 this week, we read, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And so Zacchaeus must defend himself before the hostile crowd. He says that he'll give half of his possessions to the poor, and that he'll repay fourfold all the people that he's cheated. That would be a long list of angry taxpayers. Read in this way, Zacchaeus is a sinner who repents and is converted on the spot. He promises future reparations. But there's a different way to read this story in which Zacchaeus isn't a sinner who converts, but a saint who surprises. He doesn't make promises about the future. Rather, he defends himself and shocks the crowd by appealing to his past. Both interpretations depend on how you translate Luke 19.8, and in particular the verbs that in the Greek text are all in the present tense. It's a good example of the interplay between translation and interpretation. Even though the verbs are in the present tense, the typical way of reading this story follows scholars like Robert Stein in translations like the NRSV and the NIV. They render the present tense verbs as what scholars call a futuristic present. In other words, Zacchaeus the sinner repents and vows that henceforth he'll make restitution. The second interpretation follows commentators like Joseph Fitzmaier in translations like the King James Version and the Revised Standard Version. They render the verbs as what are called progressive present tense words. In this rendition, Zacchaeus is a hidden saint about whom people have made all sorts of false assumptions about his corruption. And so he defends himself in something like the following way. Lord, I always give half of my wealth to the poor. And whenever I discover any fraud or discrepancy, I've always made a fourfold restitution. The crowd, in other words, had demonized Zacchaeus. In the text, Jesus praises him as a son of Abraham. I like this second reading. It fits with the many times that Jesus calls out good people who are bad and commends bad people who are good. Luke has already mentioned several unlikely heroes. The faith of a Roman soldier, a so-called good Samaritan, a shrewd manager who was commended for his dishonesty, a Samaritan leper who was the only person to give thanks for his healing. And, earlier, another tax collector 
who was commended as more righteous than a sanctimonious Pharisee. So maybe the story is not about a sinner who shocks us by repenting, but about the crowd that demonizes a person it doesn't like with all sorts of false assumptions. The Episcopal priest, Elizabeth Caton, notes the several ironies here. The despicable Zacchaeus is the generous one. Their traditional interpretation that Zacchaeus is a sinner who's converted actually tricks us into committing the very sin that the story condemns. It presents Zacchaeus not as a righteous and generous man, which he was in real life, who was wrongly scorned by his prejudiced neighbors, but as the story of a penitent sinner. It turns out, says Caton, that Zacchaeus does, in fact, live up to his name. He is, in fact, the righteous one. And it turns out Jesus knew this all along. And so Caton thus concludes with a tongue-in-cheek nod to Halloween. Jesus is once again turning our world upside down, confronting us with our assumptions about who is good and who is evil, and demonstrating for us the tricks we play in our minds before we treat one another, one way or another. Like the crowd murmuring about Zacchaeus, it's easy to be blinded by our prejudice of those people and find ourselves accusing the very person or people that we should be imitating. The story of Zacchaeus, a repentant sinner or a hidden saint? For books this week, I review a title called The Bible in the Believer, How to Read the Bible Critically and Religiously. It's written by three people, Mark Brettler, Peter Enns, and Daniel Harrington. New York, Oxford, 2012, 210 pages. In 2 Timothy 3.16, we read that all scripture is inspired by God. In the Greek, it's God-breathed. It's a tantalizing text, but what does it mean? The passage refers to what Christians call the Old Testament, but by extrapolation, many believers also apply it to the New Testament. Believers affirm the Bible as the word of God, but it's also very much the word of man. About 40 men, to be exact, who wrote the mini-library of 66 books across more than a thousand years in cultural contexts that are now strange, if not almost lost to us. The goal of this book, write the three authors in their introduction, is to show how Jews, Catholics, and Protestants can and do read the Hebrew Bible from a simultaneously critical and religious perspective. The focus is on the Old Testament, since that's the expertise of the three scholars, 
in the shared scripture of the three traditions. But the New Testament is implicated by default. Since most believers affirm some version of Augustine's famous dictum that the New Testament lies hidden in the Old, and the Old is made manifest in the New. In addition, the authors point out, the New Testament authors quote the Old Testament well over 300 times and allude to it over a thousand times. The book has three essays, one each from the three traditions, Jewish, Catholic, and Protestant. Each essay is then followed by short responses from the other two authors. At the end of each chapter are good suggestions for further reading. All three authors use the historical critical method to discern the meaning of the ancient text although they acknowledge that some scholars consider this a fruitless effort to unscramble the omelet. They also affirm the Bible's authority and contemporary significance. The Jewish Brettler explores how the Torah can be construed as both divine and mosaic, a reliable source of revelation despite historical ambiguities. The Catholic teaching, says Daniel Harrington, is relatively straightforward, thanks to the Church's teaching magisterium. And then Peter Enns admits that the Protestant position is problematic due to its wild diversity of opinions, the New Testament use of the Old Testament, and because of the historical problems that beset the Old Testament, in which he thinks are pervasive and beyond reasonable doubt. In his commentary on the Book of Acts from 2005, the Yale historian Yaroslav Pelikan described the predicament of the Christian historian in affirming the Bible as both the word of God and the words of man. On the one hand, the historian must abide by the canons of the discipline. On the other hand, Pelican said that he had no desire to suppress his own vibrant faith commitment. He compared the delicate task to a young doctor doing brain surgery on his mother. You want all the best science that's available, but you want it applied with tender loving care. Once again, the title, The Bible and the Believer, Mark Brettler, Peter Enns, and Daniel Harrington, Oxford, 2012. For movies this week, I review the most recent film about Steve Jobs. It's simply called Jobs, from 2013. There are lots of movies and books about Steve Jobs, 1955 to 2011. If you are familiar with his story, then this biodrama doesn't add anything at all, although I do admit that Ashton Kutcher does bear an eerie resemblance to the Apple founder with his hunched shoulders and lanky gait. 
The tomato meter on Rotten Tomato gives the movie a paltry 26%. There's just no substitute for Walter Isaacson's masterful biography, the book Steve Jobs, published in 2011, for the best and fullest portrait we have. Nonetheless, the life of Jobs is inherently fascinating for his many deep contradictions. He was a remarkable visionary, but a deeply troubled human being. In this cinematic version, when co-founder Steve Wozniak finally quit Apple, he summed it up in person to Steve Jobs this way. Steve, it's always and only about you. That's so small, so sad, and it must be very lonely. This film ends in 2001, ten years before Jobs died, right when Jobs was rehired at Apple and when he introduced the revolutionary iPod. The title of the film, very simple, Jobs. For poetry this week, we continue with our Celtic poems and prayers. This is a short and tender sleeping prayer, to be said at night, obviously. I am placing my soul and my body on thy sanctuary this night, O God, on thy sanctuary, O Jesus Christ, on thy sanctuary, O Spirit of perfect truth. The three who would defend my cause nor turn their backs upon me. Thou, Father, who art kind and just, Thou, Son, who didst overcome death, Thou, Holy Spirit of power, be keeping me this night from harm, the three who would justify me, keeping me this night and always. A Sleeping Prayer from our Celtic Poems and Prayers. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, November 3rd, 2013. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.